This is a conversation with Martin Beverly. He is uh, Chief Strategy Officer at Adam and Eve DDB in London. And uh, he's joined by Will Grundy, who is a planning director at the same agency. and They work closely together. And um, Will is the planner on the Marmite business. And the Marmite work, for those who don't know it, is, is, is actually as iconic as the product itself. The product was introduced in 1903 or thereabouts. And uh, the creative work has been fantastic. And the agency has had that business for, I think, 15 to 17 or so years. Um, you may know it from the iconic um, uh, proposition of uh, you either love it or you hate it. And they've done some just, you know, world-class work uh, over the years. Um, and we show and play a couple of the, of the spots within this file as well as uh, on the episode page, as you can see. Uh, the work, uh, you know, back in 2013, I just loved the Marmite Neglect campaign, which was just amazing. And um, so the backdrop to all of this is the fact that a new client uh, came on board. The business was in decline for roughly 10 years, the, the Marmite sales business. And uh, there was some, some, um, uh, some dynamics happening around the retail partners. And a new client had come in and a discussion in, ensued about whether or not to uh, abandon the long, uh, the long held theme of you either love it or you hate it, uh, or whether to um, continue with it. And I think that the sort of general consensus was that uh, outside of the agency was that maybe it needed to be evolved or abandoned. But the agency stood firm and demonstrated for the client who was good enough to listen to that argument and, and ultimately made the right decision uh, to keep it. Uh, with the important caveat being that the agency needed to find a way to sort of look at that proposition and evolve that proposition in a, uh, in a new light and through a new lens, uh, which is exactly uh, what they did. And the work is, again, really super and powerful. Uh, it's called uh, the Marmite Gene Project. It's won uh, almost uh, every creative award and uh, has uh, been featured as one of the great uh, successful campaigns of the last couple of years. So enjoy it. This is uh, the story of Marmite from uh, Adam and Eve DDB in London. Welcome, Martin and Will. Great to have you uh, on this episode. It's, uh, it's always fun to have people from Adam and Eve DDB on the, on the show. Well, thank you, Fergus. Thanks, Thanks for inviting us. So um, for those who don't know uh, all of the great work that that Adam and Eve DDB does. Um, I think you, you guys are probably most famous uh, for the John Lewis Christmas ads. And uh, you know, if anybody has not seen those ads, which I just can't imagine that being the case, you've got to check them out. And you know, I think that Martin has a very close relationship with their creative director who's at the heart of that great work. And we, we've done an episode on John Lewis insurance um, with, uh, with some folks from, from Adam and Eve DDB and they sort of played beautifully off of the spirit of the, of the, uh, John Lewis brand with tiny dancers. So that's another episode people can check out, but, but you guys just do some amazing things, let alone the fact that Les Bennett, uh, is housed in your offices. He probably has a lab with lots of beakers and steaming stuff, right? <laughs> in the basement. <laughs> Thinking yeah, of we, like to keep him in, we like to keep him in the basement. <laughs> I think so, he likes staying in the basement, to be honest. <laughs> I think that's great. So we're going to talk, uh, talk about Marmite. 
And uh, the work, the work is the brand itself is sort of an institution in the UK. And I don't know, is it is it is it mainland Europe or is it just a UK brand? It's no, it is very much a a UK institution and pretty much doesn't extend anywhere else beyond that. The notable exception to that is that it it used to be in Denmark, but then got banned. Um, but no, the only place you'll really find it outside of the UK is in, embarrassingly, the UK food aisles in foreign shops. Uh, and you obviously get the grossly inferior version uh, in Australia called Vegemite. But oh, the less God. said about that, the better. <laughs> Vegemite. Yeah, I've heard that too. So tell us tell us about the the marketplace when this all started. What what was what was going on at the time? And and this is this is a couple of years back, maybe like two years back, or, or is it even that? Uh, Will is it that far back be- when this campaign was produced? It's uh, slightly. I think it's three years now, isn't it? I've kind of completely lost track since September twenty seventeen. September twenty seventeen. Yeah. I think. So two two and a half years ago or so. Um, so so I guess kind of you have to take a little bit of a step back before we get to September twenty seventeen because. Marmite is a lot of advertisers and people interested in brands know about Marmite and it's pretty famous within kind of creative circles and all of that. But out in the real world, Marmite, whilst it's an institutional brand in the UK and it's love it or hate it slogan, which we kind of came up with 15, 20 years ago, is part of the vernacular. It's actually kind of, whilst the brand is incredibly well known, the business behind it has been struggling for almost a generation or at least a decade up until we started working on what became Marmite Gene Project. Tell us about the taste profile of Marmite. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, I mean, as a, the best way to describe it is, is through the slogan, like literally people will either love it or they hate it if they haven't tried it. Um, Marmite is made as a byproduct of brewing. Um, traditionally, it was literally just yeast extract scraped off of the beer barrels um, as it was being made. But anyone who hasn't tried it, it is a salty, sticky, black, gloopy, acrid smelling spread <laughs> that people. Why spread wouldn't you love it? Very exactly. Well, but I don't knock it until you've tried it, Fergus, because despite all of that, if you apply it sparingly on a piece of hot buttered toast in the morning, it is it is an absolutely wonderful thing, um, but yeah, kind of you compare that kind of flavour profile, if you like, to a strawberry jam or a peanut butter or a honey or a chocolate and hazelnut spread. It's very easy to see how it would struggle in comparison if you hadn't tried it. So you know, as a guy who grew up in Dublin, as I did. I remember Marmite as a kid and what I loved and we'll get to, we'll get to the creative work, but I loved about the creative work were some of the little subtleties that were almost nostalgic for me. Like the idea of the Marmite jar being at the back of the shelf, hiding, yeah. you know, hiding behind that, uh, that 10 year old uh, tin of beans. But, <laughs> but, so this is, this is a brand that's been around probably, uh, probably uh, 50, 60 years. Yeah, even even more than that. It was initially created as a, it was kind of Britain's original superfood. Uh, so it was 
originally because it's incredibly high in B vitamins uh, and all, all of that kind of good stuff. It was originally distributed by the NHS in bounty packs uh, in the early 20th century. So it's been around a huge amount of time as a, as a food stuff. But I think necessarily because it has a very demanding flavor profile, it's never really translated into something that is eaten more broadly outside of these, outside of these shores. Yeah, it's almost something that came out of the world wars, you know, it was kind of like Hovis bread and that old yeah. nostalgic imagery of Hovis bread. There's probably, there could have been a Marmite jar on that bread truck and it would have yeah. looked right at home. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's that kind of nostalgic exactly. design aesthetic as well that I think, I think it's been around since, I think it might be 1902 and it, and it, and it has that kind of nostalgia to it, but it's, mm. yeah, it's, to, to Will's point, it, there's almost multiple reasons to hate it because not only does it taste disgusting, but, the sort of the gloopy nature of it means that people just don't like the texture either. Um, and I think our, our kind of taste profiles tend to be towards sweet things these days. And Marmite isn't that it is bitter. It's like kind of broccoli in its, in its kind of bitterness. So yeah, in a way there's not a lot to love about it, but some people absolutely love it because, because it's so divisive. Yeah. And so you know, um, and when you when you think about it, how many how many years has the has the uh, the slogan "You'll either love it or hate it" been around? And and the, can you guys talk to where that came from? Because it's a a pretty brash way of uh, of uh, a pretty brash strategy, unusual and, and brilliant too. I think it's I think it dates back to 1996. Is that right? Yeah. Well, 1996. And and I I I, I, th- I think yeah, I remember reading my- that. It was a creative team that that kind of leapt to it just because they described the absolute unabashed truth that it's divisive. So you either love it or you hate it. And I suppose like most of the best work, it just gets straight to that point and straight to that truth um, and and just lays it out for people. And a bit like, you know, good things come to those who wait for Guinness or, you know, other brands that lean into that negative, but kind of turn it into a, a, a truth and a positive. I think that's what's what's made it so powerful. Yeah, it's almost like way back when to the VW work with Lemon, right? It was the willingness to kind of lean in on a, a potential uh, polarizing negative, right? Yeah, and I think I, I mean there's a there's a classic quote from yes. Bill Burnback, which I won't get right, but I think he said um, that you have to have a point of view uh, because uh, then people are either for you or against you. If not, they'll simply ignore you. And I think that's what we're doing with this campaign. We're we're sort of deliberately being divisive so that we get noticed. And if, yeah. if some people love us and some people hate us for that, it, that's fine because we're still getting noticed. The thing that's really interesting about it, and and it's actually it's where some people can get tripped up with Marmite, is that actually you either love it or you hate it as a enduring piece of communication is something that everyone in the UK universally loves. There's actually nothing polarizing about the, you know, the communications idea that sits at the heart of the brand. It, it's just accepted. And that's why people have appropriated it and used it for themselves. And it's why whenever a Marmite campaign comes out, the pressure is on for it to be incredibly funny and amusing and insightful because people genuinely enjoy watching them. The thing that's polarizing is the product itself. And we're just using comms to kind of surface that and and give people a bit of a an emotional free sample of what marmite is actually like to eat before you've eaten it 
and we're just totally unapologetic in the way that we do it. So let's talk about um, where uh, the the foundations of this case. So this was this was uh, roughly in 2016, 2017, a new client joins the brand. And tell us a little bit about the marketplace at that time, the, especially what was going on with Tesco, which is a major, the major supermarket chain in the UK. Yeah. So, so to talk to the Tesco thing first, obviously everyone's favorite topic of conversation in kind of 2016 and beyond was, was Brexit. And in late uh, in the summer of 2016 Unilever got slightly embroiled in a bit of a PR disaster which came to be known as Marmite Gate essentially what happened was uh, they wanted to increase prices in supermarkets especially in Tesco as a result of uh, increased labor costs and import costs and all of that kind of stuff relating to Brexit and Tesco said that they weren't prepared to pass those costs onto their customers and therefore said, if you won't budge, we will delist your brands. And instead of Unilever being the public face of the scandal, Marmite became the face of the scandal because it's the <laughs> single most iconic brand uh, that the company owns in the UK, which was um, actually, ironically, brilliant business for Marmite in the short term because people stockpiled the living hell out of it, fearing that they wouldn't be able to buy it in months to come, how wrong they were. One of the kind of challenges that we faced heading into Marmite Gene Project was how could we create a campaign that did all the wonderful things that Marmite campaigns always do, but how could we ensure that we were underpinning that with an idea that worked really really well at shelf that could enamor the retailers with it as well so that they could get involved love it so the um, my understanding is that the at that time when the new client came on that there was that there was um, at least a willingness to question the strategy behind you either love it or you hate it and yeah. and that you guys you guys had to make a decision about whether you would sort of go in a different direction or you would, you know, fight the good fight and see if you could stick to the long term. Yeah, yeah I, exactly. think, I think so, that was kind of a funny part, wasn't it, Will? Because yeah. like, I suppose when they, when you have a new client on a piece of business, I think often their sort of initial start point is, well, why need to change something? And that kind of feels like that's their job, right? They're new, so they need to come in and change something. And particularly when you see a graph of 10 years of decline, you kind of have some sympathy with that. And I think comically, one of our clients at the time said, well, this kind of love it or hate it thing, like, you know, I love the love bit, but the hate bit, I mean, we don't want to <laughs> alienate people, do we? We don't want to tell people that it's disgusting and they're going to hate it. And surely we want people to want to love it and want to try it. And so we need a new campaign. And I think it's probably not the first time in Marmite's history that that kind of accusation has been thrown at, at, at uh, Adam and Eve DDB, but we were able to kind of talk about some of the long-term success in the past that Marmite's had. We were able to talk about the fact that the campaign uh, language is part of culture. So people will say things like, oh, you know, they're a Marmite character. Um, and so you have something to build on, right? Most brands don't have any space in people's heads. 
Marmite has something to build on. So it felt like there'd been historical success and there was something to build on. We just needed to really understand the problem a little bit more and make sure that we brought the memory structures to make them stick at the front of people's minds again to try and reverse the decline. Um, and we were just very clear that we wanted to protect the long term. We didn't want to make a short term change and try and do something different. We wanted to commit to a longer term idea and start to rebuild the, the presence of the brand in people's minds. And and luckily, we, I think we were able to make the case with a few different kind of bits of data and bits of culture. And 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 they kind of gave us a chance to see what we could do with it. Um, and that and that was that was important for us. I mean, we joke in our APG paper that uh, I was a I was around in the time when Guinness lost good things come to those who wait, which uh, I shall take some blame for, although I was quite junior at the time. But I, I've never sort of let it go because it was such a brilliant, enduring slogan and so effective. And and just because a client came in and wanted to change it, it, it ended up changing and was never maybe as effective again until they came back to made of more which had that kind of substance again. So we just really wanted to keep the core of the Marmite brand because we knew that it would be effective. Mm. We just needed to give it a freshness and really understand the problem in the current context. So to that, there was, I mean, I think, I think from my speaking from my own, my own experience, there's things that I ate when I was a kid that I hated, but as I grew older, I actually began to acquire a taste. It's as if my taste buds change, which I think there's probably some biology behind that, uh, that, your, that your, uh, your tastes change. But probably the reverse is true too, that things, uh, that, uh, things that you loved when you were younger, you have less or you have to either be reminded of the fact that you loved it or that your tastes have evolved or been distracted by other flavors such as sweet honey, et cetera, et cetera. So what was unique here, it just seems that you guys had lost or the brand had lost an awful lot of you know, share amongst uh, young families. Because mm. uh, I assume that those parents grew up with this product. This, 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 was, this, was, this had a nostalgic level. It was kind of their parents' uh, product, not necessarily their own. Uh, mm. So why do you, why do you um, so my question would be, why do you think young families with children, young families, were um, were kind of uh, turned off of the brand, or weren't or weren't buying the brand as much as before. So I guess that there were there, there are probably two things at play. The first is a kind of a simple kind of uh, comms or marketing issue, which is that Marmite just wasn't salient for a whole load of parents slash shoppers, um, which just means it wasn't featuring in people's repertoires as much as possible. But I think you know what we wanted to do was understand the behavioral problem kind of behind that comms problem if if you like and so right. what we did was we didn't just kind of look at brand tracking and and those types of metrics we actually went and had breakfast with families up and down the country during the week to get a sense of how that occasion was kind of actually what it looked like and felt like for, for normal people to build our strategy from. And what we found was that, and it, this comes, you know, as no surprise to a lot of people, but breakfast, especially weekday breakfasts, are incredibly quick occasions for most parents with young families. The average breakfast from start to finish lasts less than seven minutes in the UK. 
Um, and in that context, all parents are trying to do is get something down their kids' throats. And, and there's this kind of prevailing attitude or tension at breakfast, which is that I know that I might not necessarily be feeding my kids the best thing in the world, but hell, it's better than feeding them nothing. So if I can get a piece of toast down them by slapping a bit of Nutella or honey or jam on it, then I feel a damn sight better about that than trying to get them to eat something that is undeniably a little bit better for them, just like Marmite, but that they'll reject outright or that I think they'll reject outright. Right. And that kind of that that kind of just that really framed the the real issue that we were that we were trying to solve for. It wasn't an awareness issue, it was a usage issue. And we had to think about how we could use Marmite and you either love it or you hate it in a totally different way to kind of overcome that barrier of parents not wanting to risk giving it to their kids in those moments. So Martin, for you, did did you think about it as as um as the family being a way to encourage the parent to um to put the uh, marmite on the table for breakfast or did you want the parent to try and encourage the the kids to eat it that's a good question i don't know if we quite asked ourselves that question i mean what what we did do though was um and i think this is really important to pull out is we did some sort of old school planning really so to to will's point we understood that there was decline and to to reverse that you need to get more people to buy marmite right you need penetration and trial that's what byron sharp and les would say but then we found out it was families with young children where the real decline was so we started to kind of get into that space and really try and understand that dynamic and and as wills alluded to what we then did was some actual research in the real world and that doesn't happen enough anymore i've spoken to some people who used to be in the planning department at bmp ddb kind of back in the day, 25, 30 years ago. And, and they used to spend all their time in people's homes, really trying to understand people's real lives. Um, and I, I think it's Rob Campbell who's got a phrase where he says, you know, it's about seeing people in the jungle, not the zoo. So in their natural environments, not behind the glass in a research facility. So as soon as you start to get into people's homes and have breakfast with them, you start to see that dynamic. And, and you start to see that actually, yes, the parents are making the kind of the, probably the purchase decision but it's heavily influenced by what the kids want as well and we wanted an idea that would encourage the interplay between parents and kids and it was ultimately that research that led to the idea because uh you know one of the, i think one of the parents she was she was talking about um how her kids are really fussy so like I, i've got four kids i can tell you that they are fussy they it <laughs> one of mine eats marmite but the other two absolutely wouldn't uh and so you just also you just don't need any more drama in the mornings. You know, you're trying to get them to get their clothes on for school. You're trying to get them to not forget their reading books. So you just want something easy as a parent. And, you know, and, and what unlocked it was another parent said, well, I hate Marmite, so my kids probably will too. And that was what really unlocked it because we thought, okay, like maybe there is a link here between parents hating it and kids hating it. How, how do we know whether they will or won't like it? And and for me personally, why does one of my kids love Marmite and the other one hate it? Which which just kind of felt like an interesting question for us to ask. And we would not have got to this idea had we not done that groundwork and that that research. Like I would encourage every planner to go and spend more time in people's homes in the real world, really trying to understand people because it's where you actually hear the little snippets and you you observe things that really can 
make a campaign more insightful. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think I was talking to somebody yesterday and we were, we were, the way we sort of framed it was the idea that as marketers, we, I think clients are the same way, but certainly I think planners are, is that we, we have all the dots in our mind, but we need to connect them in a way to sort of create this story or this angle. And I think by getting out and talking to people in their real homes, it just can require one comment from one person and all the dots connect immediately. I mean, some people would call that a, a sort of an insight, but, but it's the idea that, that if we don't get out and get exposed to, to the real world, many times those dots never get connected. And planning can be so much simpler by taking that time, even if it's a day, to get out there and do something that gives us some perspective. Absolutely. And I feel like it's, an, it's a kind of dying art because I think that the industry and planners have got busier and busier and it's eagle, easy to kind of Google insights into mums or, you know, and, and try and make something up and, and as Les Burnett would say, spray on a fact to try and prove mm. something. Whereas that you can't be getting out in the real world and really trying to understand people. Like from talking to the guys from BMP back in the day, they would, they would roughly be doing 50% qual, 50% quant. Whereas now a lot more of it is kind of, quant based and sometimes we lose that little bit of nuance and 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 also nothing beats being able to talk to creative teams and say this is what someone said here are some pictures from someone's house you know here here is us having a discussion and and really contextualizing and bringing to life the problem here which is we need parents to get their kids to try it and at the moment, they're worried that it's a bit of a risk and they've only got five minutes. And so they just want to get something sugary or sweet down their kids. And they're worried that maybe if they hate it, their kids probably will too. So it's a risk. And and all of that suddenly gives you a, a far more colorful context in which to play. So when we look back on the on the creative uh, for Marmite, what what in what way were you sort and I'll play spots I can play some of the historical spots too in this in this episode but tell us about how you were executing it creatively the idea of you'll either love it or hate it and then I'm and then I want to talk about what then became the new way of executing it when it's been at its most successful you either love it or you hate it has always been based around a a kind of a consumption occasion very very simple kind of construct to most of the ads in which you know kind of for some reason someone tries a bit of marmite on a toast or a bagel or a crumpet or whatever um and that has a hilarious kind of off-putting provocative effect either on them or someone around them so very famously there was an ad called the kiss where a couple get home after a date out together and just as the uh, the guy goes to the loo to refresh himself the lady sneaks a bite of marmite on i think it's on a bagel anyway they start kissing each other and halfway through he starts choking and gagging and revolting because <laughs> he absolutely can't stand the stuff and you know kind of there's been a whole load of successful ads in in that kind of construct so there's also another absolutely excellent one where a mother, uh, a newly, a new mother has just uh, had a piece of toast with Marmite on it in the middle of the night and she starts breastfeeding her baby who after five seconds decides to vomit all over her because the Marmite <laughs> taste has, has instantly been infused uh, in, in her 
mother's milk and, and what have you. So fundamentally, the kind of the key to great Marmite advertising is simple, comic ways of bringing to life you either love it or you hate it, often based around consumption. The interesting thing, I think, and this is what will then take us back to Marmite Gene Project, is that actually that formula had kind of begun to get lost in some of the creative executions prior to Marmite Gene Project. So one of the things that we observed was that actually we had got further and further away from the breakfast table, uh, which is the main place in which Marmite is eaten. And we needed to re-tether it. So there were ads around, you know, the summer of love and the summer of hate for a new kind of summer variant product, which whilst creatively well executed and crafted, weren't perhaps as strategically solid um, in their delivery as they perhaps needed to be. And so whilst we did a lot that was incredibly different with Marmite Gene Project, we also reset some of the rules which have led to enduring success on the brand. What was sort of the um, the or the strategic idea that came off of the of the of the line that you know how do you get parents who hate it to get kids to try it? So what was the strategic idea that came off of that? We kind of actually jumped to a solution because just in talking, Will and I were like, well, we've always said you either love it or you hate it, but we've never really understood why. So is it genetic? Like if if I hate it, does that mean my son will hate it? Uh, and we were just we kind of got interested in this sort of scientific question to the point where we actually took it as a question to our creative department and said, you know, is there a Marmite gene? Um, could we could we test for that? You know, is there a could we somehow use this to create uh, lots of PR and talkability and ultimately get more families trying it around the breakfast table to see if there is indeed a Marmite gene and luckily our our creative department adam and eve are are amazingly open to ideas coming from anywhere and they just embraced it they you know they were kind of thought it was an interesting construct and also we were genuinely interested to find out whether there was actually a marmite gene or not you know (laughs) can can you learn to love it is it a nurture thing where if you because one of us had read something about if, if you eat broccoli for 18 days straight you'll start to like broccoli or something weird like that where you you can start to train your taste buds to some extent so it felt like there was an interesting kind of premise there um and and then we just collaborated with with our creatives on it we just we just said okay like if we're gonna we're gonna do this how, how do we do it and and straight away we decided that we wanted to actually do it for real we kind of said, right, let's actually find out if there is a Marmite gene or not. Let's not pretend that, that we've done it and turn it into some kind of spoof. Let's actually find out. So we knew that that was a very difficult thing to actually do. And we suddenly found ourselves on calls with genetic scientists talking about how many participants we'd need and the, the kind of the, the statistical analysis <laughs> that was needed. And and Will and I and the account team and the creators, we learned quite a lot about genetic science that we didn't necessarily know before. We ended up, uh, well, we didn't, but the the lab that we worked with did over 8,000 hours of analysis and published an actual white paper on the results and and actually came back and said, yes, there are there's there is effectively a Marmite gene. There are genetic markers that that tell you whether you're predisposed to love or hate Marmite. Uh, effectively whether you like bitterness uh, and that kind of taste profile 
Um, so we made it really difficult for ourselves, but we wanted to push it that extra mile because we thought that that would get it talked about. So whilst we had every intention of actually advertising it, we wanted to just make it famous in culture as well. We don't have huge budgets on Marmite, so we were we were relying a little bit on some some PR to to get it top of mind again and to make, and stick it at the front of families' minds um, once again. So it, it just spread very organically. Like uh, I think we don't we have a very open kind of style and culture at Adam Mead that. You know, Rick Brim will talk very openly about an idea can come from anywhere and he means it. So um, he was quite happy when the planners sort of brought something that felt interesting. How do you approach a scientist or a geneticist uh, <laughs> and have a conversation about Marmite? With, with difficulty. I mean, they, I think <laughs> they, they, they thought it was quite entertaining. But I, I remember on one call. Uh, asking them whether we could patent, patent it as the Marmite gene, <laughs> TM. And they, they got very kind of worried about that. They said, oh, no, this is the scientific community. It's not marketing. Um, we don't. We frown <laughs> upon that kind of thing, uh, which was quite amusing because I, I, I think we were from such different worlds and, and they were very keen to make sure that everything was done exactly as it should. And we kept saying, do you think you'll find one? Do you think they were? And they were like, we don't like to comment. We want to make sure we've done all the analysis first. Um, but but it was great fun because it was just completely outside outside of our comfort zone. What if it didn't work out? What if they'd come back and said, yeah, you're, uh, you, you know, there, there is no connection. What would you have done then? Well, so the good news was that so we had this shows the value of of really great kind of smart qual research at a kind of early stage of creating a a really good campaign idea we had done some uh, some early qual on the idea and what we had discovered was that actually the advertising component of it regardless of whether or not it was real people loved so we felt fairly safe knowing that you know, kind of people would be warm to the idea as an advertising idea, but really where it came alive was if we had that kind of word of mouth and kind of earned media element of doing it for real, which definitely took the campaign to a level that matched our expectations for it. So we we felt safe that we could still do it, but we also did a lot of contingency planning around what if we had to kind of completely go again really quickly, could we still take the the same kind of world and find a new spin on it? And so the thing that Martin and I were interested in in that instance was an idea around, you know, we might all love it or hate it, but can, can some of us who hate it learn to love it with time? Which would have been a different idea, but would still have kind of got to something interesting we think but we felt confident that we could execute it all the same so if i understand what you're saying that you had a choice that you could have made which was you could have done this without or with the science you you actually could have still executed that that love it or hate it yeah yeah we we could definitely have still done it i think we just couldn't have done it as interestingly yeah. And as disruptively without the science, because the science is and it, one of the things that we talked a lot about to the client, because we had to continue to reassure them that that was an investment of time and money and emotion, to be honest with you, that was worth making. One of the things we talked about is like, we want to get people and families up and down the country having a conversation about Marmite. 
you need an idea that is being talked about in culture. And with the best will in the world, sometimes the best advertising ideas, whilst incredibly emotional, don't necessarily generate conversation on a fundamental basis or for a very kind of enduring basis. And you're really lucky if they do. So the science was what kind of supercharged it, for sure. So, so it became sort of the on-ramp for the advertising. So you got a bunch of, of exactly. sort of uh, PR in advance of the launch of the advertising yeah. itself. Yeah. yeah, we got a huge amount of press. Like a lot of the national papers were talking about it. It was on TV shows. Uh, Channel 4 had a whole feature on it about whether it was marketing or science and people trying it. And, and so from that perspective, uh, we were vindicated because it got us a lot of fame before the advertising even kicked in. Um, and, and that was kind of key to this. We, we just, I mean, if you can get your brand famous and top of mind, you, you're, you're almost there. The fact that we managed to get it talked about in terms of, uh, the breakfast table and the specific occasion that we wanted to be associated with was almost the double whammy that we were looking for. Love it. Tell, tell us a little bit about, um, about this sort of high level segmentation that you did around um, the target sort of being what you guys labeled as the lapsed lovers. Yeah. So this, this was an interesting bit of research that, uh, that we did, which, which actually helped us in the beginning because it really outlined the opportunity around what we were calling lapsed lovers, i.e. you've got some fanatics, roughly one in five, who, who will buy it anyway because they love Marmite and they use it a lot. You've then got roughly 31% of people who are forgetters. So it's towards the back of the cupboard. Uh, they, they don't buy it as regularly. They have another repertoire and we kind of need to stick it back at the front of people's minds. And then you've got a bunch of people who just ignore Marmite or know that they hate it, have tried it and hate it and dismiss it. And what that allowed us to do is not only just focus on lapsed lovers and this being about sticking it back at the front of people's minds, but it also gave us uh, some protection when a few of us started to go, oh my God, is this campaign absolutely nuts? Are we basically going to go and prove scientifically that half the country hates <laughs> our product and and can never learn to love it. Like that is commercial suicide, isn't it? And we were able to go, well, no, actually, because those who hate Marmite have already tried it. The vast majority know they hate it and we're not talking to them. We're actually talking to people who love it. They've just forgotten that they love it. And because we were able to have that, that kind of backup, it, it gave us focus for the campaign, but also enough support for us to keep pushing on a on something which felt <laughs> quite controversial and, and on the face of it, a very silly thing to do. I think the smart thing was that it, it did. So it, it worked really, really well just from a pure kind of Byron Sharp perspective by talking to, you know, kind of those light and lapsed users who have tried. But it also, it did something slightly different on top of that, which is that it spoke to them in a way that also encouraged them to give it to their kids. Yeah, exactly. Which was the kind of the big barrier that we had to overcome. Because it's it's one thing to for it to be top of mind and for people to put it in their shopping baskets a little bit more just as a result of advertising. It's another thing entirely for them to then take it out of their shelves, put it on the table, put it on toast and give it to their kids to eat. And that's where kind of the Marmite Gene project kind of punched much harder 
than previous campaigns had done. I'm super curious about whether you found out either through the the science backing all of this up or just through general data, do men prefer Marmite more than women? Is is there a gender balance between who does it? That's a really interesting question. And one of the question one of the things that we really wanted to do off the back of the campaign was kind of essentially profile lovers and haters. Um uh, you know, kind of so for example, uh, if you're a Marmite lover, are you more likely to be born with ginger hair or <laughs> you know, kind of foolish but interesting kind of relationships like that? Sadly, the the data that we've got, whilst incredibly robust, didn't go into that level of detail. Um, certainly not in the in the first instance. But I think if we had had our time again, it would definitely have been something that we would have wanted to explore, but it would have meant getting more people with more kind of variations and stuff into the original test. And given that we were asking our clients to get uh, saliva samples from over 200 people anyway, it felt like a bit of a stretch um, at the time. I loved the idea that you guys realizing that, uh, that Tesco, the buyers at Tesco, were sort of uh, predisposed to uh, delisting um, a Marmite, that you guys uh, did a sort of a direct marketing campaign towards those buyers in an effort to, to, more, to secure your, your, your place on shelf. Can you talk about the kits that were personalized? Yeah, so we, uh, as part of the, the overall campaign, we created Marmite gene testing kits that anyone and everyone could buy online to find out whether they were born lovers or haters. But what we wanted to do was really enamor that kind of commercial audience with the campaign, get them excited about it, and therefore kind of, you know, essentially offer them an exclusive on it in an attempt to secure additional shelf space. So we sent them uh, personalized testing kits and personalized Marmite jars for them all to find out whether or not they were loves and hates as well. So we, I mean, we essentially treated our buyers as influencers and we kind of gave them a bit of a VIP sneak peek of it all, got them really excited about the campaign and that kind of helped galvanize them behind it and behind Marmite as a result. So you guys got the, the, you did these test kits, made them available publicly and then people could, I assume they could swab and then they could submit it. And was this was this separate from your yeah. sample, your scientific yes. sample? Yeah, it was based on the science. Yeah, so that once was totally done, separate. Yeah, once we'd done the testing in the lab and identified these genetic markers, we were then able to create a, a DNA testing kit which would test you for those markers. Uh, and in truth, the the whilst it was available to the public, it was quite expensive, <laughs> uh, and we didn't actually expect anyone to buy one because clearly you can just taste marmite and probably find out for yourself with a jar. <laughs> but it just helped us create even more talkability that they actually existed. And to the point Will just made, we were able to send yeah. them to influencers and to buyers and use them to help tell the story. Um, and again, it was just an example of us really trying to push it as far as we possibly could and make it as difficult for ourselves as possible because we just believed that that would, that would get people talking. You know, these these gene kits were part of what really got the yeah. PR going. 
Yeah, for sure. So, so Martin, can you tell us about uh, uh, Rick Brim's reaction and then uh, and, and level of excitement around this, which I believe is pretty high? And then, can you talk about some of the creative executions and describe them? And we'll we'll play them uh, uh, over your over your description. Sure. So, yeah, as as we said, when we when we kind of have this premise of is there a Marmite gene? You know, are you born a lover or a hater? Uh, we took that premise to Rick and and he was immediately excited by it because he just saw the potential in it and he loves ideas that don't kind of feel like advertising and so he was quite excited about actually finding out for real and doing it for real and creating the PR and the talkability so we immediately kind of created a sort of different shaped campaign that that started actually with a kind of direct response DNA testing kit that had PR and had lots of social and interactive stuff built in and and then we started to kind of make sure that we had the craft around each of those elements. And we worked with some brilliant um, creative teams who who uh, came up with an idea for the film because we wanted to go big on TV. We wanted to make this as famous as possible. Uh, we went with TV and we, we worked on a, an ad which sort of playfully uh, poked fun at uh, families getting test results, which was a slightly controversial thing to do because sometimes test results can be... Um, can be quite upsetting or kind of really quite life-changing but we sort of thought that we had just enough about enough license to kind of play in that space uh, and we wrote a script about a number of different families getting their test results and a dad being so pleased that the, the kids had his genes and you know the the old couple where it felt like one of them had have been having an affair with jam yeah. the, the couple who uh where she's pregnant and then she's worried that he's got the wrong genes and we were just you know a, a young uh, teenage boy who's kind of coming out to his dad about the fact that he's a lover so we we're able to kind of have this slight <laughs> tongue-in-cheek narrative yes they're here this should be interesting please find and close the results of your family's recent marmite gene tests these show whether you were born a lover or a hater what does it say you're a hater Dad. Yeah. I um I need to tell you something. I uh I'm a Marmite lover. I thought you said I hated it, and this says I love it. What type of mother does something like that? But baby, I Oh my goodness, I am so stupid. I prefer jam. I'm carrying a hater's baby! I should be my childhood! Oh sweetheart. Come here, son. You don't care. Oh, we just want you to be happy with who you are. Have you ever done it here? In this house? Yes. I only did it to make you happy. <laughs> Do I look happy? On this table? Yes. Ah! Oh, baby, please don't! I don't hate Mum, I hate you! I can learn, I can learn, look. <laughs> Get in, all lovers. Oh, I hate it! I hate it! He's never even tried it. And we worked with um, a very talented director called James Rouse, uh, or our creative teams did. He is uh, the best in the business when it comes to casting and to the subtleties of humour. Uh, he did Sorry I Spent It On Myself for Harvey Nichols a few years before. Oh, so he just work, gets... Yeah. 
yeah, he just gets that nuance of casting and comedy and, you know, that just the right feel to it. And so he was integral in developing the script and um, Ben Tollett was was absolutely brilliant at overseeing that whole creative process and brought so much to the table too. So we were able to kind of craft a piece of film that we thought would really kick the campaign off in a famous way, but we had a whole integrated approach around it and we phased the, the PR first. So we got a lot of uh, billions of impressions before we even came in with the, the TV. And then, as Will was saying earlier, we underpinned it with a lot of shelf, on-shelf promotion. So we were able to get Tesco on board and to have a special limited edition jar, which talked about the, the testing, about are you born a lover or a hater? And so the whole thing works right the way through the line so that we had the kind of mental availability through the advertising, but the physical availability on on shelf. And yeah, and the whole thing came together really nicely in the end. It, it sort of had a, a hopefully quite a new school shape of campaign, but it also had some old school craft to it in terms of the writing and the radio and the outdoor that we did alongside the TV, I think. Uh, was really, really nicely crafted by our creatives. Were, were individual vignettes from the 90-second spot, were they, did they become digital pre-plays or, or any other? Uh, we, we mostly stuck to TV. I think we had a little bit of yeah, digital. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about that was we, we actually shot a bunch of vignettes, so lots of 20-second ads, because that was the most efficient way to run the campaign. But then because we were feeling a bit, brave we we stitched them all together into a 90 and said to the client it works really well as a 90 doesn't it why don't we run this in the middle of x factor and make a real big splash and they actually went with it so we ended up with a long form kind of almost felt like an appointment to view but then lots of 20 second vignettes are all around the kitchen table every time and families having breakfast but it allowed us to play kind of play on that humor and and keep the campaign fresh I've sort of been binging on Marmite ads uh, for the last uh, week or so, and I one of the one of the uh, scenes that always sticks in my head is the fact that uh, it's almost like police officers turn up at this person's home, and they begin to search the cupboards. And one of the things I just thought was so smart was uh, one of the officers who's searching through a, a, a cupboard kind of steps back, sort of shocked and and then looks in the drawer and you see hidden in the back of the drawer uh, and she says there's a baby in here was that was that part of this campaign or was that part of a prior one no that was part of a prior campaign so that was in 2013 we did a campaign called marmite neglect which was based off a slightly different insight which was that there were lots of people when we when we went and did a similar exercise in people's homes we found there were loads of people with jars of Marmite that needed using up, that were literally being neglected, stuck behind people's shelves. It's an early start for the rescue team as they visit a house in West London. Neighbours reckon they're a little bit tested. We've had a couple of reports of neglect at this address. What we're going to do is have a little look around your cupboards. This is a bit of an oh, stuck right at the back. Who knows how long that's been in here? The team's only option is to remove the stricken jar. Getting back, clean him up. Soon, a more delicate case is called in. I wonder if I could come in and have a little chat. I think you might know what it's about. Yeah. As the team have come to learn, offenders can be from all walks of life. I promise he will go to a, to a good home. I'm sorry. Across town, Lucy is dealing with a very different call. I don't know 
way here, to be honest with you. It doesn't take long before new recruit Callum Howe finds another jar in a shocking state. Oh, no. What's um, It's baby one. OK, don't panic. It's not been used in months. All right. Lid stuck. All right, gently, gently. Hold on a second. I can change. For those new to the job, such scenes of neglect can be traumatic. A little jar. I've not... I've not seen one that small before. After an emotional day, the team drop off the rescue jars at the rehoming centre. I really love this one. OK. Yeah. Where a proud family welcomes their new addition. Love it, hate it, just don't forget it. Um, and so I think what we wanted to do was continue the kind of the provocative nature of Marmite Neglect, but kind of apply it to a slightly different problem. So they, there's definitely kind of continuity in tone. Yeah, they're very British, they're very tongue-in-cheek. They flirt with quite dangerous subject matter in some instances, but they do it in such a lovely kind of irreverent way that the brand kind of gets away with it. Yeah, I never, I never, it's such a great line. So great. Cause then, yeah. and, and the reason she said that was because there's, there's, there is little baby Marmite jars as yeah. well as the oversized it's, jars. <laughs> yeah, we put, we actually, we invented um, a limited edition range of the baby one jars when Marmite Neglect went live and they actually started selling on eBay for over 500 pounds a pop. <laughs> That's fantastic. So what can you guys share uh, uh, with, uh, with us about results from, um, from Gene Project? So the good, the good news with Gene Project is that first and foremost, from a sales perspective, it, it kind of really works in the kind of the short and, and the midterm as well, whilst the campaign was live. So in the six weeks following the launch of the Gene Project, at a total level, sales increased by 14% across all retailers. Uh, and in Tesco, they increased by 60% at the same time period, thanks to both the kind of the work that we had done to get them involved with the campaign, but also the incremental distribution and shelf space that they then deliberately gave to the brand as a result. Um, but what we also saw is that over a slightly longer period of time, actually kind of that increase in purchase and consumption continued so in the four months following the launch um month on month sales increased by eight percent and that equated to i think off the top of my head 4.8 million jars of, of marmite being sold which is equivalent to 12 million pounds in value sales so from a kind of a kind of a hard business perspective is successful i think obviously from a communications perspective we created over 2 billion uh, earned impressions as a result of the conversation. Um, it, tr it trended live during X Factor and all of that good stuff. It won a heap of creative awards and was well recognized. I think as well, one of the really, really brilliant results of it kind of more broadly as a brand was that it absolutely restored everybody's faith in the power of you either love it or you hate it to continue driving Marmite as a business in a way that everyone is really, really proud of. Um, so there aren't doubts anymore around whether you either love it or you hate it is a polarizing and alienating thought. Everyone is absolutely behind it and it will continue to be the thing that makes this brand distinctive and provocative in culture in all of its communication efforts. 
Martin Beverly, Chief Strategy Officer, Will Grundy, Planning Director, Adam and Eve, DDB London. Thank you both for coming on this episode. It was great. Thanks so much. Thank you, Fergus. And we'll see everybody on the next episode.